We're in the book of Exodus, and we're in chapter 13, if you'd like to navigate there. We're going to put in at verse 17 and read through chapter 14, verse 14. The topic, the Lord makes his presence known to the Israelites by leading them as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. The title of our message, hey, hey, you, you, go after my cloud. That's a, that's a top 10, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good one, yeah. Carla Brooks went crazy over at first service. Where is Carla when you need her? So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, whatever time it is, Lord, it's, it's time to meet with you. You've seen this appointment from before the foundations of the world. You have business that you'd like to transact with us, each of us individually, and all of us corporately as a church. Your Holy Spirit indwells us. He also is among us. We individually and we corporately are his temple. We're his home. Speak to us, Lord, in that quiet place between the soul and the spirit where only you can communicate. Take this ancient text and anoint it to our hearing. We pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I frequently get lost. The embarrassing thing is I get lost going to places I've already been. So far, I haven't got lost going home. That takes us into a whole nother problem, but uh, I do sometimes end up places I didn't intend to go. Has that ever happened to you? Where you just, for some reason, you're trying to go home and you end up at Walmart? No? Because I thought it was, no. Okay, well, anyway, maybe it is that time. GPS is a big help to me, except when it's not. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you have arrived at your destination when I'm actually nowhere near it. I might not even be in the vicinity, but the GPS assures me that if I get out of the car, <laughs> everything's gonna be okay. If you Google it later, you can read all manner of hilarious stories involving GPS mistakes, that is, if they're not you, like the woman in Northbridge, Massachusetts, who drove her car into a sand trap on a golf course by strictly following turn-by-turn -turn directions. In 2013, an Apple Maps GPS error was directing people to drive onto an active runway at a major Alaskan airport. Thankfully, no one was hurt. Some GPS errors, however, have been deadly. It's what I'm beginning to call death by GPS, said Death Valley Wilderness Coordinator Charlie Callaghan. People are renting vehicles with GPS. They have no idea how it works, and they're willing to trust the GPS to lead them into the middle of nowhere. It's important for people to know that only a tiny portion of Death Valley has reception, search and rescue coordinator Micah Alley said. GPS units are not only fallible, they send people across the desert where no roads exist. The Israelites who left Egypt in the Exodus had a positioning system that led them through the desert. We're going to read about it in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 13. Let's take a peek. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Unlike our modern GPS, God's pillar system could never be wrong. Where it led, the Israelites were to follow. When it stopped, the Israelites were to camp. Now, as Christians, we talk a great deal about God leading us on our pilgrim journey home, 
God's leading will be our point of contact with this amazing story. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God positions you by what we call his leading. And number two, God positions uh, you for what he calls his glory. Let's take a look at our leading in chapter 13. Now, it struck me, thinking about this, that God enjoys giving us signs in the heavens. Can you think of some from the Bible? Well, the rainbow in the sky after the flood promised Noah and us that God would never destroy the earth by water again. During Joshua's conquest of the promised land, God caused the sun and the moon to stand still about a whole day, it says, so that Israel could defeat her enemies on the field of battle. The New Testament era began with the star of Bethlehem leading the Magi to the king of the Jews. We have forgotten or we ignore what believers in times past called the Maseroth. It's the gospel proclaimed by the constellations God has placed in the night sky. It's mentioned in the book of Job when God said, can you lead the Maseroth in their season? Today, if you even mention it, folks think you're a false teacher talking about astrology. But godly men like Dr. Henry Morrison, Donald Gray Barnhouse pointed to the gospel in the constellations as the real meaning of the biblical phrase, the heavens declare the glory of God. In the future, the revelation of Jesus Christ lists heavenly sign after heavenly sign as the great tribulation progresses on the earth. It will be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel that God will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Last year, the internet was buzzing with the observation that for either the first time ever or for the first time in centuries, constellations and planets were going to line up just precisely as they are portrayed in Revelation chapter 12. Certain extremists argued that it pointed definitely to the rapture on a certain date in September. That was unfortunate because their critics had grounds to immediately ignore the sign and they spent all their time discrediting the extremists. God went to extraordinary lengths to put that sign in the sky. Uh, We largely ignored it. He's a heavenly sign maker uh, and, and loves to either lead in that way or just display his power. The exodusing Israelites experienced an amazing heavenly phenomena We're going to see it as their story is told, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 13. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. There was a direct route through the desert, but it would take them past Egyptian fortresses along the way that protected Egypt from the Philistines. The people would look at those and see war by perhaps thinking the Egyptians might attack them or it would remind them they were in uh, a territory that was frequented by the Philistines. Uh, Either way, God led them by another route. Make a mental note, God led them with their best interests in mind. I'll give you a spoiler, it won't always seem as though God has their best interests in mind and it's a thing of faith for them to believe it. Nevertheless, God was definitely thinking about his people for their good. It's his nature to do so. Verse 18, so God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and all the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. 
Contrary to what you might read or have been taught, no one is absolutely certain of the route that the Israelites took. There are several biblical possibilities, not just people's ideas, but by putting all the biblical accounts together, there are several possibilities looking at ancient maps and such. Whatever route you suggest must take into account two things we are certain of. Number one, the body of water they had to cross was deep enough to make crossing it impossible without miraculous intervention. And number two, the water was deep enough to drown the Egyptian army. You may have heard critics of the miracles of the Bible say that the words translated Red Sea are really Reed Sea, a different body of water. They say the Reed Sea was shallow enough to cross without divine intervention, that at some times of the year it's only a foot deep in places, sort of like the King's River, where you can just walk across it on dry land. To which you've undoubtedly also heard it said that it's an even greater miracle that Pharaoh's army drowned in 12 inches of water. That's some miracle right there. Truth is, if you consult Strong's Concordance, the translation is Reed C, or it can be, but that doesn't resolve it because there are places in the Bible where those words identify what is definitely today's Red Sea. And so uh, Moses is using these words in a way that the contemporaries would understand. It'd be like me saying to you, hey, after church, meet me at the King's River. Well, I don't know what that would mean to you. What part of the King's River? Where on the King's River? We're gonna try and float on the King's River? Are we gonna try and walk across it, fish? What are we gonna do? Uh, and so that's the same thing here. Uh, we don't need to identify these actual places. We just need to know the major details. They were on the Exodus. They came to a body of water that couldn't be crossed and that was deep enough to drown an army. And so whether the Red Sea or the Reed Sea or some other biblically possible location, it was deep and it was wide. They went up in orderly ranks, which is no small task for nearly six million people and their livestock. The Exodus never makes the list, but it would rank as fifth or sixth largest gathering in human history. I'll let you discover the list on the internet. The largest, 2013, when 30 million Hindus gathered for a pilgrimage that occurs every dozen years. There's an aerial photo of it, 30 million people. Uh, one of the popes visited the Philippines not too long ago, drew a crowd of six million. It's like number four or five on the list. And so if uh, those of us who understand the Bible, we would put the Exodus there too. So this is a big undertaking. Verse 19, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Centuries earlier, it was Joseph who requested that his bones be taken from Egypt. In the book of Acts, Stephen indicated that the remains of other sons of Jacob were taken there as well. Joseph, you'll recall, had risen to become second in power only to Pharaoh. From his position, he was able to save his father and brothers from famine by having them move to Goshen. But Joseph saw it as a temporary stop on the way to the promised land. Joseph, you know, for all practical purposes, was the second most powerful man in the known world. But he didn't want to hang out there and he didn't want to be buried there. He understood that there was a city whose builder and maker was God and that they were on a pilgrimage to the promised land and beyond. He thought little of his position in the world. People of God, we prefer a barren pilgrimage to the pleasures of sin for a season. Our hearts are set on that city 
just as the ancients was. Now, it had been centuries since Joseph died, and yet his request was still fresh on the minds of the Israelites. We would say, good job to previous generations for passing on their heritage. You know, sometimes I don't think you can tell the stories enough uh, over and over and over again. Every, every now and then, somebody, um, not one of our teachers, but somebody will come along and say in the Sunday school, hey, you know, why do the kids have to go over these same stories year after year after year? Why can't we teach them something else? Uh, to which we say, hey, every time they go through it, they're getting it a little bit deeper, a little bit more in their age level until they finally, you know, get it at an adult level. But... Um, even for all the repetition, if you've been in Sunday school since you were a child, sometimes you still get it wrong. People ask you how many animals Moses took on the ark, and you say two of every kind, right? And then they say, no, Moses didn't take any animals on the ark. Noah did. And so it's a, you know, and so we get these things wrong. Remember when we were young Christians, we were having a Bible, we went to a Bible study at the house of these folks up in the up in the mountains, and we got half through, halfway through the Gospel of John, and then we got to the death of John the Baptist, and the host of the Bible study said, well, how did, how did he write the rest of the Gospel then, if he was dead? And they hadn't, they'd been Christians for like 10 years, but nobody had told them that John the Apostle was not John the Baptist. And so, so you know, we need to have this stuff passed down, and this is pretty obscure. It's like, Joseph says, you guys swear, I mean, there's only a few of them at the time, that when I die, my bones won't be buried here like a mummy, but they'll be taken to the promised land as a step of faith. And hundreds of years had gone by, and Moses knows about that and honors that. And so uh, keep passing down our Christian heritage. Verse 20, so they took their journey from Succoth and camped on an Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Again, we don't know the exact location of these places. Succoth, for example, isn't a town at this point. It's just an area. Um, what is important is that they were straight out of Egypt. They were at the edge of the wilderness. And so God was fulfilling his promise to get them out of Egypt. Verse 21, then the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, this is a single pillar, which was a cloud by day and a fire at night. Pillar is, is a correct translation, but we tend to think of that as some kind of a narrow column, like a pillar that holds up part of a porch or something like that. Psalm 105.39 says, God spread a cloud for their covering, and the idea is that this cloud at night in this fire, or this cloud by day and this fire by night, covered the entire assembly. It wasn't just something out somewhere that, you know, like a small sliver of light or, or a cloud. This was something that covered them. This was a massive heavenly phenomena that accompanied them. It, had, it was wide enough to cover six million people and all of their livestock. Matthew Henry called it a constant standing miracle. In verse 19, the cloud will be equally equated with the angel of the Lord. The pillar was a manifestation of the angel of the Lord, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And the pillar will guide them to Mount Sinai, and God will speak to them from it. And so thus they were led by the Lord. We too are led by the Lord. We read in Romans 8:14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So if you're a son or a daughter of God by virtue of the new birth in Jesus Christ, 
you are to be led by the Spirit of God. He's not doing it as a pillar, so how is the Spirit leading us? Well, first of all, we would say we have direct communication with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, the communion of the Spirit. In Philippians 2, 1, he calls it the fellowship of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit who lives in us communes with us and we have fellowship with him. Uh, We commonly say that God speaks to us. Now, Vice President Mike Pence got criticized recently for saying God speaks to him. One washed-up celebrity said people who believe God speaks for them are suffering from mental illness. Uh, And so, thank you, Joy Behar. Oops. Anyway, (laughs) apparently, however, that is not true for Oprah, who denied she's running for president in 2020 by saying this, if God actually wanted me to run, wouldn't God tell me? So God speaks to Oprah, just so you're understanding that. Whether you call it a still small voice or a prompting or an inner witness or a check in your spirit or a quickening or something else, as a believer, you grow in relationship with the indwelling spirit of God and you begin to commune with him and to have fellowship with him. And of course, it's a little bit difficult to talk about because it's supernatural. How do you really describe a person within you, the third person of the Godhead, communicating with you without violating your free will? And so there's a lot of different ways that we talk about that. Commonly say, well, God spoke to me. And I think when I say that to a Christian, uh, they understand what I mean, that there was a still small voice, a prompting, a witness in my spirit, a directing, those kinds of things. Now, second, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would bring his words to remembrance and thereby teach us. John 14, 26, written by John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. An incredible amount of personal leading already is written for us in God's word, the Bible. Peter said, everything you need for life And for godliness, in other words, to live a godly life is contained in the Bible. And so questions that we have about life and about, uh, you know, career and about marriage and about relationships and about families and all of that uh, is in the Bible. Holy Spirit brings it to our remembrance and then he empowers us to do what God asks us to do. To be complete, we should also mention a few other ways the Bible says God can lead us. They would be visions and dreams and prophecies. Now, don't freak out. I know what you're thinking. Gene's already mentioned astrology. Now he's talking about visions and dreams and prophecies. I need to get out of here quickly. No, that's not true. It wasn't astrology. It was the Maseroth, and it's a real biblical thing. And God can speak through visions and dreams and prophecies, whatever you think to the contrary. And these are all exampled for us in the New Testament by believers in the church age. The Lord came to Peter in a vision to tell him to go to the house of Cornelius and to share the gospel. It's one of the pivotal events of the book of Acts because it opened up the gospel to the Gentile world. The Lord came to Paul in a dream to encourage him in his ministry to the city of Corinth. And it was probably a prophecy that sent Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary trip. Maybe it's rare, but God never quits communicating in these ways. The only caution, and it's a real caution, would be that we must test visions and dreams and prophecies by the sure word of God. Over the years, a lot of people have come to me and told me what God told them, and I've had to say, no, he didn't. 
because in his word, he says this, and he can't contradict himself, and he's not making a footnote. Uh, there's no addendum. This is the word of God, and it's true. God cannot tell you something that is contrary to the word of God. Paul and Barnabas, when they were prayed for and there was a prophecy to go out in, in, on this missions trip, the text says that they prayed and fasted some more. So it won't offend God if you believe that you've had a vision or a dream or a prophecy to wait on him for confirmation, usually by the inner voice of the Spirit. But anyway, God speaks with us. The bottom line here, though, God positions you getting you where he wants you in order to continue the work he began in you at your conversion. Unless you are backslidden, running from God in sin, you are probably right where God wants you to be. And so secondly, in chapter 14, God positions you for what he calls his glory. I gave you a spoiler earlier when I said God's leading won't always seem as though he has your best interest in mind. I get that from the position his pillar put the Israelites in. Verse one, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Piharoth between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. Now there were camping between two mountains with the sea behind them, thus we would say that they were boxed in. Verse three, Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Pharaoh was going to receive intel about the Israelite movements. It seemed to him that they were lost and wandering aimlessly. They were in a perfect spot if you wanted to attack them. Their campsite was so absurd that not for a moment would Pharaoh think that God was protecting them. It would seem as if they had been delivered from Egypt only to be led to destruction. Verse 4, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over his army, and the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, we've spent a ton of time in previous studies discussing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Suffice it to say that it means God was doing things that revealed Pharaoh's own hard heart. God would make a move, offering Pharaoh a genuine opportunity to obey, but each time it only strengthened Pharaoh's resolve to disobey. Let my people go, God said to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh refused, God sent a series of nine plagues to Egypt. After each one, Pharaoh had opportunity to obey, but instead he would harden his heart. Finally, the tenth sign, the death of all the firstborn among man and beast, uh, overcame Pharaoh's refusal, and he let Israel go. Pharaoh could have cut his losses right there, but his heart was hardened even more, and now he was bent on punishing the Israelites. It would seem at this point as if the Holy Spirit quit contending with him and just completely gave him over to his hard heart. God didn't force Pharaoh to follow Israel and attack them. It was his free will decision. God's response to it, however, would bring him honor, and that's a word that can be translated glory. And so if this is what Pharaoh was going to do, God would use it to his glory. Verse 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. They let Israel go because of 10 plagues. But now that the immediate crisis was over, they regretted the loss of their workforce. They probably wanted some revenge on top of that. Nonbelievers often cry out to God for help in their catastrophe 
only to renege on their promises to believe or follow him if he helps them. I know before I got saved, there were at least a couple of incidents that I can remember where I thought I was going to die or live a life worse than death. Uh, and um, I cried out to God in the only way I knew how, made him some crazy promises, and then completely reneged on every one of them as soon as I was okay. Uh, and so it, it, this is what the, or the Egyptians are doing, is um, now getting back to who they essentially are in their hearts. He took 600 choice chariots, all the chariots of Egypt, and captains over every one of them. Uh, for those of you who like military strategy, a difference is made here between the choice chariots and the chariots of Egypt. The first ones were the king's guard, amounting to 600. They're called choice, but it's literally third men. Three men are in each of these chariots, the charioteer, and then two soldiers uh, to do battle. And then as to the chariots of Egypt, they would normally contain two persons, a charioteer and then a soldier. Sometimes only one soldier was in the chariot. He would have to wrap the reins around himself and kind of maneuver the horses uh, with his shoulders while he was also fighting. Uh, and so you have to understand that a chariot with this kind of firepower was the equivalent of a tank. This was an armed battalion, uh, and it, this would be absolutely terrifying. If you've seen the original Ben-Hur with the chariot race, you get, I mean, that's something like six or 12 chariots. Imagine hundreds and hundreds of chariots bearing down on you with soldiers and their weapons in them. I mean, this, this, is, this is it. I mean, you, there's no hope for you when you see something like this. They had left with boldness, it says in verse eight. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He pursued the children of Israel. They went out with boldness. But when God led them into what looked like a trap, we'll see their boldness immediately give way to fear. The Christian life often begins with a Holy Spirit boldness. Over time, given our circumstances, it gives way to fear. Perhaps that's one reason why God says, fear not, at least 74 times in the Bible. Um, I, I don't know that it's really boldness, but I, you know, when you're, if you get saved later in life, when you're first a Christian, it seems like nothing bothers you. You've just real, you realize that your sins have been forgiven, you're on your way to heaven, and everything else just pales in comparison. I remember it wasn't too long after I'd been saved, I was a sales manager at a, a title company, and uh, I, I had the greatest car ever built. It was a 1988 Honda Prelude. Uh, I mean, it, it just, I love that car. It, it, it is a little sporty car. It was the last car that you could buy that could use leaded or unleaded gas. And a little five-speed, I could get from the bottom of the hill in San Bernardino up to Running Springs in less than 30 minutes in that thing. I had that thing wired. So I'm at the office one day. One of the sales ladies uh, who worked for me, she, her car was in the shop. She had a meeting to go to. She wanted to know if she could borrow. I said, oh, actually, I offered. I said, hey, borrow my car. I'm not going anywhere. Takes my car 10 minutes later. She's in the doorway looking very disheveled. And I said, you look like you've been in an accident. She goes, oh, I have. I go, oh, in my car? Yeah. Okay, let's go check it out. And there it was, my whole back end of my car just destroyed. And I'm sitting there. My dad used to own a shop, you know, an auto shop. And so I'm thinking, yeah, this will never be right again. Uh, it'll never match. It's some beautiful color, midnight blue looked black until you got near it, and then it had this real shimmer. It's a, it'll never look the same. It'll never drive the same. It'll never be the same. I thought, who cares? It's a car. 
I uh, talked to the guy at the, sh- the dealership. I said, hey, here's five cars that you can get me. I don't care which car you get me. I'm a Christian. As long as I have a car, what do I care? Give me a Jeep, get me a truck, get me a Prelude, whatever and stuff. And, and you know, nothing bothered me. Man, I am not that way anymore. <laughs> I have totally deteriorated. Don't ask Pam, because she will tell you, but man, just tiny things bother me. And I'm thinking, what happened to that bold Christian who's like, hey, wreck my car. The more wrecked, the better. Greater testimony. And so I'm making fun of it, but I think sometimes we need to get back to those early days in our thinking. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, his army overtook them camping by the sea behind, uh, beside Phiharoth and before Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. We're gonna see they cried out the wrong way. Humanly speaking, there was no way out. And remember too that they had no military training or weapons. The Israelites were like lambs led to a slaughter. Verse 11, then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? A week, maybe two had gone by from elation and boldness. They sunk into despair and fear. After everything they had seen God do, both in Egypt and lately, their faith was gone. Verse 12, is this not the word we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. The Israelites knew the location of the promised land. They knew that at first they had purposely been led to take a longer route. They knew that the way to the promised land was either across uncrossable water or through an Egyptian army. They thought with good reason that they were about to die horrible deaths on a battlefield. Slavery looked pretty good compared to certain death. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you're never gonna see these guys again. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Moses, at this point in his career, definitely a glass half full guy. Great motivational speaker. All's well, Moses said, and in fact, we know the story. It was better than well. Egypt would be removed as a threat for decades to come. God would strike fear into all the surrounding peoples and nations by the glory he would bring to himself, defeating Pharaoh's army miraculously. But that wouldn't happen until tomorrow. Today, God's chosen people found themselves in the worst possible position. They were caught in a trap that seemed to seal their imminent destruction. They had no way of escape. There was absolutely nothing they could do to help themselves. Any hope of reaching the promised land was gone. They had sunk to complaining against God. This situation screams death by GPS. And yet we know unequivocally that God had divinely positioned them for his glory. I must respectfully conclude from this that a Christian may, and in fact will, find himself or herself in the worst of positions. You will see it as entrapment. You'll think that God has led you into the trap. All of his promises will seem empty. Hope will be lost. There's nothing you can do. You're given to openly complaining against God. Job was positioned. There was no way out of his suffering. Nothing Job could do except scrape his boils. All God's promises seemed empty. All hope was gone. 
Job complained against God. Now, the Israelites were in a precarious position for a terrifying day or so. They saw the salvation of the Lord as the pursuing Egyptian army was drowned the next day. Job was in a position on the ash heap for maybe six suffering months. Then he saw the salvation of the Lord as he returned to health and as his earthly fortunes were totally reversed. The same will be true of you, Christian, as God positions you for his glory, except I have this significant qualifier. I can't tell you how long you'll be boxed in facing off the enemy. I can't tell you if your position will last for hours or for days or for weeks or for months or for years or for decades or in some cases for the rest of your life. I wouldn't have said that when I was younger. I couldn't comprehend a believer enduring or years or a lifetime in such a position. But as I've mildly suffered over the years and especially as I've been privileged to share in the mighty sufferings of others, I've come to understand that some believers who faithfully stand still do not see the salvation of the Lord until after this life is over. They see it, we all see it, but some won't see it in certain positions until after this life is over. Now, you know that's true. Take someone with a terminal illness. We pray and pray and pray that God would heal them. God does heal. We've seen healings over the years. Sometimes God chooses to not heal. They are delivered after death. They are in heaven with the Lord. And what, what do we do? We rejoice. And, and so you will be delivered. God will glorify himself in and through what you're going through. But I can't tell you how long it's going to last. The, the duration is something that eludes us. With Job we cry, I know that my Redeemer lives. And from Job we can learn, he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. As a jeweler, God can only bring forth pure and precious gold from our lives eventually. Meantime, stand still, but look up and keep your head in the clouds. Revelation 1.7, behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. We say, even so come, Lord Jesus.